Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. Hey everyone, this is a bit of a special episode of Broken Record. Not just because it features Rick Rubin, Malcolm Gladwell, and Bruce Headlam all at once, but because it happened at the spiritual home, Shangri-La, of today's guest. That's the band's Robbie Robertson, who reminisces about converting a home in Malibu into the now legendary recording studio run by Rick. Before moving on to discussing the band's early days as backup for a rockabilly singer when they were known as the Hawks. And they also discuss Robbie's longtime work with director Martin Scorsese, which earned him an Oscar nomination at this year's Academy Awards. We should also note that if you like this episode, there's a new documentary called Once Were Brothers Robbie Robertson and the Band that'll be coming out in theaters on February 21st. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin, Malcolm Gladwell, and Bruce Headlam from Shangri-La speaking with the studio's architect, Robbie Robertson. We had a fantastic day the other day yeah. here. And I, when I was telling the stories of Shangri-La, mm-hmm. you know, the stories of he, this... He, he envisioned this place and built it, and uh, it was unbelievable. And it was mine. It, it, you know, the other guys in the band thought th- this was a good idea, but from Big Pink to Sammy Davis Jr.'s house to the Worcester, we made these records in not in studios in other 
places where there was an atmosphere and it could be our atmosphere and our sounds, you know, and everything was not on somebody else's way of doing somebody else's wavelength. You know, you would go into a studio and there'd be these, used to be these union guys and they'd be like, oh, looks like it's lunchtime. We're like, what are you talking about lunchtime? We're, we, you know, we're about to do something. And, and they'd be, and I'd be like, I, I, I don't know, this should be louder. They don't, don't touch that, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I thought, I don't want that. I, 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 I don't, I don't want to do that. So I said, what we're going to do is we're going to make these clubhouse, these workshop, these studio things that is our world and our music and our sound. And whether it was true or not, I believed that it gave it a character and a thing, which it did for better or worse. What's what's interesting about that too is that now it's become more the norm. Yeah. That that said, when you did it, technologically it was much more difficult to do. Like when you did it, you needed big studio equipment. Like today people can do it on their laptop. So they could it's easier to make that jump. But when you did it, the infrastructure involved was not easy to pull off. It was unheard of, yeah. except for Les Paul. Les Paul said, I'm going to build a studio at my house, and I'm going to build an echo chamber into the side of this hill, right? And he was going to do all of these things. I had an argument the other day with Van Morrison about being able to do this kind of thing. And because he was saying, I only like to play live just with my band. And I go in and we sing and they play this song and we kept capture a moment. We've all done that. I, kn I know it really well. I played yeah. Rick some music the other day that was all like first or second takes. And it was, you know. Songs you've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Songs you've heard a lot. So anyway... So Van is saying, it's got to be live, and it's got to be blah, 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 and that's the way it used to be, and it's the way it should all be. And I said, well, what about Les Paul? He overdubbed. He made things. He played on top of himself. He double-tracked things. He invented it. So, so Van says, I know, but he was magic. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you, made, you, did, you recorded at Sammy Davis Jr.'s house? Yes. We made the band album, the Brown album. Uh, and we rented Sammy Davis Jr.'s house in the Hollywood, it's up Sunset Plaza up in the Hollywood Hills. And we all stayed in the house with the family and we turned the pool house where he used to have his parties with Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack and all these people. We turned that pool house into a studio. And the record company thought this was the worst idea they ever heard. <laughs> they thought this was ridiculous. He said, drive 15 minutes. We have the best studio in the world here. Frank Sinatra records here, right? All of this stuff. And, and, and I was like, no, 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 this is a different thing. And finally they were like, okay, okay, I guess. I don't know what you're doing. And it's probably going to be bad, but. Yeah. Uh, Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. didn't show up. <laughs> In the no, of it. Sammy Davis Jr. He owned. He still owned the house. He didn't uh, live there. He, so I was imagining him like he lived great. there, stepping in on one of your recording. No, sessions. but everything in the house 
was built lower. You go into the 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 bathroom and the sink was down here <laughs> and it was everything was built to his specifications you know and uh, and it seemed like this is great <laughs> this is great sammy's world you know amazing and so we recorded the album there and then we mix it or we're going to mix the record and there's this guy in new york tony may was his name and he had mixed the Isley Brothers, It's Your Thing, Do What You Want to Do. So it was such a great-sounding record. We said, wow, let's see if we can get Tony May to mix this. And he worked with Phil Ramone and all these people there. So anyway, he comes in, and he puts up the tapes and everything, and he says, uh, these tapes are awful. I'm going to have to do a lot of work on this. And uh, I thought, hmm. I don't know if I like that, you know. So anyway, he did a mix that was not what I wanted at all. It's not the way I heard it at all. So anyway, we're like, thanks, Tony. See ya, you know, and we which moved songs on. Were, which songs were these? These were on the, the band album. It was The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, Up on Cripple Creek, uh, you know, Whispering Pines. On, what was on, wrong with his mixes? His mixes were... Uh, trying to make this slick and bright and and there was a woodiness to it there was a muddiness to it that that suited the the music it was earthy and i i wanted that right but he didn't get the joke so that was okay so i went and mixed the album with a guy, another guy at the at the the old Jerry Ragavoice hit factory in New York. This guy mixed the album. We mixed it. The guys in the band, we were all in there moving the faders and got it the way that that I wanted. So we get it. And then it's like, okay, the guy, the mastering guy, his name is Bob Ludwig. You gotta get him to master your record. So we take the record to Bob Ludwig, and uh, he puts it, you know, he puts on the tape of the, the mixes and everything, and he says, oh, boy. He's like Tony May. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I'm going to try. I'll see if I can fix this or save this. And I'm like, hmm, that's really depressing. So I go and I tell the other guys, I said, I don't know. We might have done this all wrong. Everybody's saying it's it's terrible and that, you know. So the net, I don't know, a couple of days later, Bob Ludwig calls me and he says, I am such an idiot. I am such a fool. I didn't get it. I so get it. This is the, maybe the most interesting record I've ever heard. He said, I am so sorry. And he told me, Bob Ludwig, he said, I made the same mistake when Sly Stone brought me There's a Riot Going On. I thought that that was a big mistake, too. And he said, and then I realized it, you know, I had to accept it the way that I accepted your record. And uh, so I was like, because <laughs> I thought he was right, you know. And if he had stayed with that, I don't know what would have happened. So he, you know, 
he mastered it and hardly did anything to it in, in the mastering. And it was just one of those things. It was a homemade thing. It did have that character to it. And that was part of its specialness. You came very close to ruining two of the great masterpieces of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the century. Yeah, well. Uh, do you remember actually the first songs you wrote? I guess for Ronnie Hawkins? Mm-hmm. What were they like? What What were they? Well, one of the reasons he hired me, I wrote a couple of songs for him when I was 15 years old because I heard him say that I need some songs. And I was trying to figure out how I could crash into this world of Southern rock and roll. That's the real thing. These guys are from the Holy Land in the South where this music grows out of the ground. So I've got this whole fantasy in my mind and everything, and these guys can do it. And they were all from the South, and and they sounded that way, and all of it. It's just okay. We and I'm up in Canada, so you know what I mean. It the, the, it feels like such a distance, and I'm trying to figure out a way. How can I become a part of this? How can I get into this club? And they'll accept me. So I hear him say, I need some... So I go off and I write a couple of songs. Where are you when you write these songs? In Toronto, I'm in Cabbage Town. You're in high school? Yeah. I was 15. Did you know anything about writing songs? Well, yeah, I had written some songs already. And uh, this was just something that just kind of boosted your game up. You know, as we go along, certain things happen. And it makes you think okay, now I got to take on this challenge. And if I can, if I can win that war, whoa, I'll now be, this will be my starting place instead of here or something. What did you hear Ronnie Hawkins say he needed some new songs? Well, we, I had a band called Robbie and the Robots and we were an opening, uh, you know, uh, act for Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks on a weekend in a dance out in the West End of Toronto at an arena. So we went on and played. You're 15, and, opening yeah. for Ronnie Hawkins. And Ronnie and the other guys, they thought, wow, these kids are not bad, you know? They're not too bad. And that was all I needed to hear. So I was just trying to get some of it. So I was hanging around, and then they went on and killed it. I had never heard anything like that before that far uh, that up close you know i just heard other bands at the time from toronto right and or whatever this was something and you had to get into clubs to really hear these people play but they were doing a thing on a weekend so i see them play and i'm like this is unbelievable a real rockabilly band right like Carl Perkins and, you know, Elvis and, you know, Roy Orbison, like you're right out of that school. So I think, and the energy and the excitement in the music, and Ronnie was an amazing showman, and he always wanted to have killer musicians, and they were great. So after they played, I was just hanging around trying to get some of it to rub off on me, you know, some of that musicality. And so I was trying to be helpful and hanging around. And then I, you know, and and they ended up liking me. And they said, uh, 
all right, you know, at the hotel, why don't you come by? And I would just try to, try to make myself useful, you know, and somebody needed a new string put on the guitar or whatever, anything, you know? So I, I, I was hanging around and I was hanging around as much as I could without getting in the way. And one day I hear Ronnie Hawkins say, I got to make a new record and I need some new songs, you know? So I went home and I wrote two songs and brought them back to him. So I wrote a couple of songs. I don't know if they're, you know, what you're looking for. So we played him the, played the new songs. And he said, damn, son, I'm going to record both of those. What was the best of them? They weren't any good. You know, I was just trying to get in the door. So, so I wrote this song called Someone Like You. I think, didn't Adele steal that title from me? I <laughs> did. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so he records the songs. He records the album. Comes back to Toronto. They're playing at a club, the Lecoq Door in Toronto. Brings me the album with the songs on it. And I'm like cutting my finger trying to get this album opened to look and see and on the song credits there everything there's the two songs and there's my name but it's my name and somebody else's name and i said who's levy i didn't there was no levy there when i wrote these songs morris levy m levy it was morris levy who owned the record company, Roulette Records, that Ronnie was on. So I'm like, this guy, how can he just put his name on there? So Ronnie's kind of saying, son, in this business, some, you know, he was just giving me the old shit happens kind of story. And I'm like, this is just wrong. No, he wasn't. And I'm telling Ronnie, he wasn't even there when I wrote them. I'm just, I'm a kid. What do I, what do I know? And Ronnie's like, listen, son, these guys, these guys up there in New York, and you don't want to mess around with them. They're the kind of people, you know, that, you know, you get in their way, you know, and they find you in the river. Then he's giving me this whole story. I'm like, in the river? He wasn't even there. So anyway, sometime later, Ronnie says to me, if you can write songs, I can write, maybe you'd be good at hearing what I was good. So I'm going to take you to New York and I'm going to take you to the Brill Building and we're going to meet all the songwriters and you're going to listen to their songs and see if there's something that would be good for me to record. Great. So anyway, we go and I meet Doc Palmas and Mort Schumann. I meet Lidburn Stroller. I meet Otis Blackwell. It's in, in my book, Rick, when you read that and, and you hear the, this whole story, it's amazing. Otis Blackwell and Titus Turner, all of these guys. And Otis Blackwell is trying to think of a song that might be good for Ron. I'm in his little room. And he's playing a thing on the piano and he's accompanying himself, telling me how Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis fucked him on the song he wrote, Don't Be Cruel. While he's he's telling me the story and accompanying himself on the piano, right? And it's like, this is amazing. I'm, you know, and then Lieber and Stoller are playing me songs, and I'm like, Wow, that is a Lieber and Stoller. And I'm saying, it's great. 
do you have any, any more? And then, and finally, Jerry Lieber says to me, and who are you again? And I said, oh, I'm just, you know, and I was like, I, I was in heaven. And Doc Palmas and Lieber and Stoller and Palmas and Schumann went on to be friends of mine for the rest of their life. Amazing. As long as they lived, we were still in contact and friends of mine from that very er early point. So we are recording. I mean, I'm listening to songs. Ronnie says, well, we have to go up to the record company and we have to see Morris about some things and everything. I think... Great, we'll get this songwriting thing straightened out <laughs> once and for all, right? So we go up to this office, and it's like a scene right out of that Damien Runyon would have written. It is, there are blondes on, tel on the telephone with their hair perfectly over one eye, right out of a movie, right? And then there's these guys in mohair suits with pock marks and a bulge in their, you know, in their suit, like on this one side. I'm thinking, wow, this, these people think it's real, you know? <laughs> they, they're living in this thing, and then maybe it is real, right? So then the door opens, and Morris Levy says, Ronnie, Ronnie, I love this guy. Ronnie, come on in. And I think, what happens to gangsters when they're young that their voice goes like that? All these gangsters seem to talk this way. How old was Mars Levy at this time, would you say? I don't know. I would say late 30s. Wow. How old are you? I'm uh, 15 and a half. <laughs> I'm, by now, I'm pushing 16, right? <laughs> So anyway, so we go in and Ronnie Hawkins is doing his thing. He's doing the camel walk and stuff. And, and Morris just loves him. So he says, Morris, this is this kid I was telling you about that I think has a lot of potential, All right? So Morris is there and he finally looks at me. He says, yeah, he said, uh, if you have to do any time, it'd be good to have him with you. And I'm like, what is it? He means if you have to go to prison, he could be your boy. And I'm like, I'm going to forego this songwriting problem <laughs> completely. I can't believe that's the joke that he's telling. So anyway, after this stuff and we... And we did find some songs that he recorded. And then a few months later, he calls me and tells me to come down to Arkansas to try out because I'm getting better and better as a guitar player. And he does think, I don't know what it is, but this guy's got something or another. And then I go on this mission to prove, because at 16 years old, I, I don't have the experience. I'm not a good enough musician yet. And I'm from Canada. There's no Canadians in rockabilly bands. So it was unheard of. So I had a big mountain to climb in that. And I went down there and uh, I ended up winning that battle. 
How much did you practice back then? Do you remember? Like to get in your mind, to get the job, what was it like? I practiced till my fingers were bleeding. And uh, I woke up many mornings and the bed beside me was a, my guitar. So I just, I just thought, I can't, I, I, I can't let this go by. Yeah. Because just to convince my mother, too, at, at 16 years old, I'm leaving school and I'm going to the Mississippi Delta to join up with a rock and roll band. You know, she's like, what? You know? She doesn't even understand what this could possibly mean, except she could see in my eyes this thing that was so driven and that it was, and I, and it was like, if I don't try, if I, if I don't do this, I'm going to be sorry the rest of my life. This is the biggest opportunity. It, it you know, it couldn't have been in my mind a bigger, uh, you know, bigger thing. So, and I went down there and Ronnie Hawkins was like, oh, son, you're too young. You're too, I don't know if this is going to work out. And I was like, you'll see. And I, I lied about my age, <laughs> you know, for, uh, you know, five years. Wow. <laughs> did you, did you look older than 15 at 15? I was 16 now. 16. And, and Ronnie Hawkins actually said to me, he would say, son, can you do something? Can you shave? Can you? I didn't even shave at the time. And I didn't know what to do. And I got an electric razor and I started shaving nothing. And my face was raw from this electric. All it did was make me red. It didn't make me grow any whiskers or nothing. And so for the first while... When, where we played, I would stand kind of back a little bit in the dark, you know, and because there would be lights and everything, and I, I knew just to get out of the way of the lights. And then between sets that we would play, I would just go in the in the back room and and stay there till it was time to go on again. Because there was club guys saying, hey, I don't want you to get me shut down to Ronnie. Of course. And Ronnie was like, no, no, don't worry about it. I'll blah, 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 blah. And he had to do all this double talking and things. And he, and he would say, no, no, no. It's like, he, we call him baby face. He just, he just looks young. You know, he's, he's old enough. He's just, he just looks young. But Levon, he joined Ronnie when he was 18 after he graduated from high school and he looked very young and they got away with it. So he thought, well, if he could get away with it from him, you know, and then a year after I was with Ronnie Hawkins, all the guys from the South, except Levon were leaving one by one. And then one by one, we were hiring Canadians we hired Rick Danko, who was from Simcoe, Ontario. Then Richard Manuel, who was from Stratford, Ontario. Then Garth Hudson, who was from London, Ontario. And they all had their own bands. So we were, you know, stealing the leaders of all of these bands. I was one of those, too. And that Levon and I said, we got to get that kid. He's, you know, he's got potential. <laughs> We'll be back with more from Robbie Robertson after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. 
you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with more from Robbie Robertson. When in all this did you start writing the music that became what we know as the band music? Not the actual songs, but when did you start hitting on those ideas? When the Hawks were the personnel, the people that went on to become the band. At one point, we outgrew the music that we were doing with Ronnie Hawkins. And we were experimenting with other kinds of songs and, and uh, other kinds of music and reaching deeper and getting better and better. And finally, it, you know we couldn't stay in that place. So we left Ronnie Hawkins. So when we left Ronnie Hawkins, the idea was, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to play some gigs and everything, and then we're going to get a record deal, you know, and become who we are, you know? And so I started messing around with writing some ideas. Was I was the only one 
that thought about songwriting in the group at that time, because I had written songs before. It was kind of like, okay, I guess someone's got to do it. I got to do it, right? And so I, I started writing some things then. And then just as we were getting a record deal and starting to do something, this, uh, this fellow named Bob Dylan came along and asked if we would help take him electric and, and be his band on a world tour. So that kind of, you know, it just put everything on hold a little bit, but it was like a phenomenal experience what this guy was doing at the time. This is just when he was going from being the, you know, the, 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 the man in folk songwriting to wanting to do something else and wanting to play, make music with other musicians and not just him and a guitar and harmonica. And that was really interesting to me. He was really interesting to me. Um, I loved this idea. Some of the other guys were like, hmm, I'm not sure about this. You know, we we were on the, from the other side of the tracks. We weren't from the folk music world at all. So anyway, it was like an interesting experiment in terror playing with Bob Dylan. And we toured with him all over North America, all over Australia, all over Europe, and people booed and threw stuff at us every night, just about everywhere we played. And you couldn't help but think, well, who else has been through this? Who else knows how this feels? There wasn't anybody on that list. I didn't know that this had ever happened before. And I'm sure, with, but not with somebody who's on the crest of changing music forever and writing songs like nobody's ever written before and all of this stuff, that every night we get booed and we get through this whole thing alive. So after we got through it alive, then it was really time for me to start thinking about writing songs because it was like we've done the experiment with Bob Dylan now we got to get back to doing our own thing and and that's when we were doing the basement tapes at Big Pink and it's where you know when I I started writing and thinking about who are we what do we sound like what are these stories you know you said that Bob Dylan was interesting to you um why were you interesting to Bob Dylan um, it, it probably because we were a real band, a real band that played. We weren't some studio musicians that you could hire. We were a band that knew how to play with one another and had a language already that we spoke with one another. And so this unit coming in that had a sound, that had a thing amongst them, you know, it was like something ready-made. In the beginning, when I first met with him, he was trying to hire me to, um, away from the group to play guitar with him and some other musicians. And 
So I had to say, no, no, uh, I'm with a group. We're a brotherhood. So he was fine with that? Did he? No, he wasn't fine in the beginning. And he was like, uh, no, no, I've got some other guys and, you know, that are really good and everything. And I was like, then I can't do it, you know? And so, uh, so he came around. Was there a tryout or he just said, let's do this? You know what the tryout was? So I played two jobs with him and I said, I can only do it if Levon is there too. And, and so he said to me, uh, he's a drummer. He said, uh, is he as good? There was this big studio drummer at the time. Bobby Gregg was his name. And he said, is he as good as Bobby Gregg? I said, oh, no, he's better than Bobby Gregg, you know? And uh, he said, oh, okay. So anyway, we, Levon and I played with him and some other musicians for just uh, two jobs we said we would do. And it was at Forest Hills in New York and the Hollywood Bowl. And they, and they booed. You know, it was like, whoa, what's that about? And charged the stage. And uh, I hated it. What was your reaction to that? We just played louder. And they hated it more. And, and I thought, if Bob can handle this, we can handle this, you know? And so we just kept going and going. And it was hurtful. And then there was a, a point in this tour, because sometimes they would tape the shows, you know, on reel to reel. They would tape it and see how the sound man would see how it was sounding, because it was like, maybe it's the sound man's problem, fault. So there was a point in the tour where we have one of these tapes, and after the show, we're sitting in the hotel room listening to this tape and i said to the other guys and bob they're wrong they're wrong this is good this is really good and the world is wrong and we're right and you, and it wasn't because i was sure of that it was because if you didn't say that it would be like this is, in a, we're in a terrible situation. And it just gave you the feistiness or the strength to say, we're doing something here. And if you don't get it, it's your fault. You had to take that attitude. And we played all over the world and ended up with people booing as loud as ever. And we're playing at Albert Hall in London, and the Beatles are there, and the Stones are there, and the Who are there, and everybody's there, and the audience is booing us, and they're all watching this. And that is, that's really awkward when there's people, musicians, that you want to impress, and everybody's booing you. You think, how do you possibly think we're any good when everybody's booing us those guys like it though did, did the stones the beatles the beatles said don't pay any attention to that they're wrong this was really good wow so i i was kind of like see 
<laughs> but Levon didn't like it, though. He didn't like that. Nobody likes being booed and, and people throwing stuff at you. Uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite convinced of that. But Levon didn't like the music. He didn't like Bob Dylan's music. He didn't like any of this and didn't want to be playing with him at all. Levon left. Then when we all moved to Woodstock and we had Big Pink, we called Levon and said, okay, you gotta, it's time to come back. And he came back. And Bob was like a different guy. He looked completely different. And he was writing songs and he was, you know, it was just great. And Levon came back and loved it all. Loved being, you know, back with his brothers and loved uh, Bob and came around on the music. He understood something. He had time to understand it. Plus the songs that I was starting to write, he was like, oh, that's who we are, you know? So the pieces were coming together and he came back into the fold bigger and stronger than ever. When did you know you had, or was there a particular song that when you finished, you said, okay, this is our sound. I, I think I'm getting it. Was there one moment or one song that kind of gave you the idea for what the band could be? No, I didn't know. We were just experimenting and in a discovery process. I didn't know it until we were recording it. And I was playing something for Rick the other day that we recorded something. And, uh, and it was breaking all kinds of rules in the way you record and what you do and what you're not supposed to do and everything and we were trying this and it was it was discouraging what they were telling us going into it but we were doing what we knew how to do and we recorded it and then we went in and heard it and i said that's it that's what who we are that's what we sound like and it was unlike anybody else or anything and and still at the time you think and that's either a good thing or a bad thing that song was what well there was two songs that i played for him one song was called tears of rage which was the first song that we recorded on the album and it's the first song on the album and then we recorded a song called the weight and then when we recorded these songs, it was like, okay. Can you tell me a little bit about writing The Weight? Because it's just such an unusual song. Like how it came to you or... Well, I was saying this was a song. This was a spare song. This was a song that I had that if something else didn't work out, we could use it. So we had to put it together mostly right there in the studio. I had played it for the guys before and everybody thought, yeah, cool, you know? But nobody was like, whoa, that's it. That's a, you know, none of us knew. And then when I was writing this song, I was drawing on these influences from when I was 16 years old 
and went from Canada down to the Mississippi Delta, some of those characters, some of those images were, you know, I had now pulled them out of my trunk of imagination and I was incorporating them into a, a musicality and in the stories. And I was also very much, which I've, you know, I've, I've said this before, that I was very much into Louis Boonwell's films. And there was, there was something, there was something in his, them, a thematic thread in some of his movies that I couldn't get over. And it was really about people trying to be good, really trying to do the right thing. And then something comes along and something turns it upside down on its head, right? And so this was a story about a guy who comes into this town. It's called Nazareth. And it's because that's where the guitar company is from. So I look in my guitar and it says Nazareth, Pennsylvania, right? So I look in there and I say, I pulled into Nazareth, right? And I start writing this story. And it's about a guy who goes somewhere and everybody that he runs into, it's like he's just trying to be of goodwill. He's just trying to do the right thing. And it turns into, it's like the old saying, it depends on who you run into in storytelling. You're going along, you think you've got an idea, but it depends on who you run into, right? And so I'm thinking of all of these characters, and some of them are based on characters that I imagined or I met when I went down to the Mississippi Delta. And I'm thinking what would be really cool for Levon. I knew his instrument really well, of his, his voice and everything. And, um, and I thought, I thought I was doing a Louis Boonwell thing. I wasn't, but I thought I was, right? And I thought I was, and I, when I wrote the song, I thought, well, there's a song. I never heard that song before. Maybe that's good, you know, but it was unfamiliar. And so with that, you think, geez, I don't know. Is that, is that good or bad? Is that different or just obscure? You know, like record producers have to consider when they're making music. And so when, I taught the song to the guys and everybody was kind of enjoying. They knew where I was coming from in some of these things. Um, the other guys didn't care about Louis Boonwell or anything, but I did. And so anyway, they, they took the ride on it. And as we were getting into it, we were kind of smiling to one another like, that verse, that Carmen and the Devil verse, you know, that's pretty cool. And then, oh, this thing, and ah, and then it has like a conclusion that ties it together or something, like a movie would. All of these things. I've just I've been a movie bug, you know, uh, so long. So anyway, I was making a little movie. And, uh, and then we record the song, 
and have I have no idea except we got through the whole song, didn't make a mistake, felt pretty good. We went and listened to it, and I thought, holy moly, <laughs> that's a thing. That's a thing right there. That's a sound. That's I, I haven't heard that before, you know. And all of those things then add up for you inside, you know. Can you put your finger on what was so unique about that sound? Or is it just a kind of gestalt thing that... No, that's part of the great holy mystery that you really don't know. And if you think you do, then you're not ready for a good surprise. You know, going in and I say, Garth, why don't you play piano on this? And Richard, you play organ. And then when we get to this part in the song, why don't we do this and wait, and then you come in, and then you come in, and then you come in together, and then, you know, and then that folds over on top of itself. And all of these ideas, I had no idea if they were good ideas. I thought that, you know, it's enough to make you want to do something. Then we got the song, and I said, you know what? On this second last verse, Rick, why don't you take over the lead vocal on that? It just seemed like a good idea at the time. And once again, it wasn't until we went in that control room, heard it over those speakers, that Garth playing the piano on that really made sense, that Levon's drums with these big tuned down toms that I had asked him if he'd be okay doing. And his vocal, I wasn't even sure, this is the key I wrote it in. I don't know if it's a good key for you to sing it in. And he's like, yeah, no, I think it's okay. So all of these things are way up in the air. You have no idea, really. And then when you hear it all come together and those pieces of the puzzle, actually fit that's when you say yeah i knew all along <laughs> we'll be back with more from robbie robertson after the break every week at broken record we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great that's what mark chaikin does but for the u.s stock market Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back with more of our conversation with Robbie Robertson. The band eventually broke up with one final concert in 1976. It was filmed by Martin Scorsese and released as The Last Waltz. It's become legendary and kicked off a decades-long working relationship between Robbie and Scorsese. Starting with Raging Bull, Robbie's done the music for most of Scorsese's films, including his most recent, The Irishman. Not too long ago, Rick discovered a piece of music that he loved, and when he found out it was from a Scorsese movie, he had to ask Robbie about his involvement. So I heard this on the radio, on some obscure streaming thing, had no idea what it was, and started researching, trying to find out, because I hadn't heard anything like this before. It was, it was fascinating to me. And it was fascinating because the I was familiar with the music, but not familiar enough to know what it was. But I'd, I feel like I'd heard the music before. And then I'm listening to the vocals and I'm thinking, this the singer is unbelievable, but it sounds like the singer's not listening to the music she's singing to, even though... It fits like it, it, it clearly works, but there's a strange alien connection to it. And it just sounds like magic to me. It sounds like a brand new kind of music. So when I saw Robbie the other day, I asked him about it because I didn't know who made it, but I knew that it was in a, a soundtrack that he was involved in. And I asked him how it came to pass and he, and tell us how it came to pass. <laughs> I, um, I was working on the music uh, for Martin Scorsese's movie Shutter Island, and uh, and and I was uh, 
I was on a roll of a certain kind of music that him and I hadn't really experimented with much before, uh, with Christoph Penderecki, yeah. who is somebody that I've admired for years. And I told, I, I've said to Marty, someday, sometime, we've got to find a way to use some Penderecki and some John Cage and some, you know, modern classical musics in a movie. So when he decided he was going to direct this film, um, and he sent me the script, and uh, and he said, yeah, does it give you any ideas? And I said, this is it. This is the time. This is when we can, I think we can... He said, whoa, really? Modern classical music? And the, he said, interesting, because it's a, it's a movie about insanity, and, uh, and modern classical music is fearless in expressing some of that part of, of, of the mind. So anyway, we did a lot of things that, in the movie, and it was great fun, and so we did all this stuff, and then at the end, it was like he said, uh, I said, I don't have anything figured out yet for the end of the movie and the end credits. So I had heard this piece of music by this composer, Max Richter. I think it's called Daylight something or... Um, but anyway, I'd heard this piece of music, and and it was almost adagio-ish, you know. There was something that really pulled on your heartstrings in it, and and it fit in to the other world that we were experimenting. And there was a song that I knew about for years that just that stayed with me by Dinah Washington who's always been a favorite of mine, her sound, um, her interpretation. I've, you know, she's just one of my faves over the years. So I'm thinking about this song, This Bitter Earth, that she sang. I'm thinking about this Max Richter classical piece. And, I, and there was a connection there for me. So then I have them, I check it, they're both in the same key. Hmm. So I then took the Dinah Washington piece and I cut out each of her lines in the song like you would a sample in hip hop. You know, it, it, I, so I had her whole performance. Now I've got the Max Richter piece. So I take her line by line and lay her in the way I would have sung it on top of the Max Richter thing. I just put her there and I do this thing and it's, I don't even know if you're allowed to do that. It's like, can you, can you do that with Dinah Washington and this great composer, Max Richter? Um, I don't know, but I can't help but do this. So I lay this stuff in, I send it to Scorsese and say, I've tried something here, 
but I've got to warn you, I don't know that this is okay. Um, but there's something about it. And see what, so he said, what do you mean not okay? And I said, I've taken a, a liberty on this thing and I'm taking somebody's music and I'm putting it with somebody else's music. And this is not like a little sample in a hip hop tune where we're playing a little riff of James Brown here for a moment and then we're on to something else. This is the whole piece of these two artists. So anyway, I send it and he says, oh my God, this is beautiful and it's perfect. At the end of this movie and what did this thing and to have this bitter earth come on after this thing and blah, blah, blah. so anyway, so then I say, well, I'm not going to call them and ask them if it's okay. Somebody has to call Max Richter and Dinah Washington's family or kids or whoever and see if it's okay that I've done this, right? And they called and they could call me back and they said, they heard it and they love it. I thought, wow, that's a really good sign, you know? Because a lot of people are like, you cannot mess with this, you know? You, you know, you can't cross that line. That's, that's a sin, right? And that they said they, they liked it. So anyway, it ended up at the end of this movie. And I was telling Rick the other day, some months ago, I'm watching a French movie that I was curious about. I'm watching this movie, and throughout the movie, they use this piece of music. And so I'd, I'd say to Martin Scorsese, I said, wow, I was watching this movie, and they were using this throughout the, the movie. Not just once, they are using it, you know, a few times. And he says, they can't do that. <laughs> I said, they did. It, uh, yeah. it might be too late for us to object. And then they looked at the soundtrack and they said, who's Morris Levy? Why is he? <laughs> yeah. It, it makes her voice sound like I was thinking, I kind of know that voice. Yeah. yeah. I never but would I have guessed. I never would have made the connection. It sounds so modern. It's so, it, exactly. It's like it's yeah. so modern. It felt just completely avant-garde, but beautiful and unlike anything I heard before. Yeah. Thanks to Robbie Robertson for coming on the show and, of course, for creating Shangri-La. You can hear some of Robbie's music, including songs off his 2019 release, Cinematic, by listening to our playlist for this episode at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And while you're there, sign up for our behind-the-scenes newsletter. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Mia Lobel, and is a production of Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn 
for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.